The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Episode 47 begins with the companions closing in on their destination. They are back in the Kazmirioth and the Eye in the Fire, somewhere at the base of the Cloudspur, is less than two days' journey away. In order to move quickly, risks must be taken. One of these is the crossing of the Skundavar, the Bridge of the Wind. This is an ancient dwarven contrivance, a long bridge made entirely of chains. For dwarves, its use involves a little risk, for humans, a little more. In the end, the entire party crosses safely, but both Harl and Eredin go for a harrowing ride as the wind lifts and tosses the structure, and themselves along with it, over the dizzying chasm below. Next, we catch up with Sov Merriman's activities over the past few weeks. He is set to reach Blacknail's vault, if it is there to be found, at roughly the same time as the party. But the Dark Cleric is not even aware that he is in a contest to reach the secret place first. Finally, we rejoin the companions during their last day of travel. Using Grumblebelly's maps, Raydell is able to locate the Fire River, but the river is not the only thing he finds. On the bank, he discovers a huge footprint. It serves as a physical reminder that, as Grumblebelly put it, we are in giant country now. Chapter 48 Part 1. Day 62. Afternoon. Elevation. 4,000 feet above sea level. Party status. Harl. 22 of 26 hit points. Gyrios. 20 of 27. Eridine. 11 of 14. Umora. 18 of 18. Grumblebelly. 11 of 11. Raydell. 12 of 16. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield, Charm Person, Levitate, and Knock. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds and Bless. Grumblebelly has memorized Detect Magic and Protection from Evil. The dwarves called it the Branamirioth, the Fire River. But as the party followed its western bank, it seemed like nothing more than a stream, and not the most lovely stream at that. The waters were brown, cloudy, and smelled slightly of sulfur. At Grumblebelly's suggestion, when the group came to a good place to do so, they crossed to the eastern side, 
the artificer explained that Blacknail and his son Grithwhip would have approached from this side, so they would be wise to do the same. Foremost on everyone's mind was the giant footprint Raydell had pointed out in the morning. Weapons were in hand for the duration of their march, but as the hours went by, they saw no threats. They heard nothing but the babble and flow of the river. Eventually, the Branomirioth grew wider and deeper, and they were glad to have crossed it while it had been easy to do so. Trying now would be quite a task. The river was starting to look like a river, 30 feet across and 10 or 15 feet deep. Harl was beginning to wonder how he would cross with his armor. If the eye in the fire was really an island in the river, he would have to get to it somehow. Neither he nor Grumblebelly could swim, either. A few more hours passed, and they continued along the eastern bank, still with no signs of giants or any other dangers. The gargantuan column of the cloud spur blotted out the sky to the north. The other mountains, arranged around it, looked like children at their mother's apron. After a time, Radel pointed ahead. In the distance was a large pale dome of rock. The river split and bent around it, rejoining on the other side. An island in the river, the eye in the fire. By the time they reached it, the river was at least 50 feet across and probably 25 deep. Getting across may be a problem, admitted Harl. Grumblebelly nodded in worried agreement. Let's rest here, continued Harl. Raydell can scout ahead and find the easiest place for a crossing. Don't worry, Grumblebelly. We'll find a way. We have to find a way. Umura and Grumblebelly have shared many conversations over the past few days. One topic they return to often is meditation. Grumblebelly swears by it and wonders how Umura has become so proficient with magic without it. Umura has the interest but lacks experience. She's been practicing with Grumblebelly's guidance but so far has not been able to achieve the correct state of mind. Today, as they take a rest to allow Raydell to scout ahead, she finally succeeds. Umura, sitting cross-legged in the posture Grumblebelly taught her, isn't even aware of it when she begins to levitate a half inch above the ground. She will also not notice until later that a new tattoo has magically inked itself on her skin in the space between her collarbones. Umura has reached level 5. As many of you know, level 5 is a very big deal for magic users in D&D. This is when they get their first third level spell, and third level spells can be extremely powerful. This is a real treat for me, and I'm so excited to find out what she will get. Before we make that roll, there's a few other items to take care of. First, Umora gets new hit points. The roll. Unbelievably, I've got a four. With her constitution bonus, Umora goes up to 23 hit points. That's astounding. Let's see if the luck continues with ability score increases. A six on the die means the score goes up by one point. First is strength. A five. Close, but no good. Intelligence. A six. Wow, look at that. Umura has achieved an 18 intelligence and has reached the maximum possible. I suppose she has Grumblebelly to thank for that too. If every roll I make for the other scores fails, I'm still happy with this result, but we'll make the rolls anyway. Wisdom. Another six, what's going on? Her wisdom goes from a nine to a 10. Dexterity. A five, no good. Constitution. A four. Last up is Charisma. 
before. Well, that's it. But wow, Umura really won the lottery today. But the best is for last. What spell will she get as a result of her newly elevated consciousness? The Expert Rules lists 12 spells, ranging from purely utilitarian to glamorously pyrotechnical. I admit that there's one or two that I would feel a bit disappointed to get. On the other hand, there's a couple that are wildly exciting. There's nothing to do but roll and hope for the best. Rolling a d12. I've got a 9. What's that? Oh my, today is a good day. A very good day. As Umura levitates above the ground, the air around her begins to charge and crackle with electricity. Umura knows Lightning Bolt. I'm ecstatic with these gifts from the Dice Gods, but we still aren't done because Girius also reaches level 5 today. Let's get to rolling for this brave cleric. Hit points. Rolling a d6. A good roll. A 5 on the die. Plus his constitution bonus is 6 points. Kyrios goes up to 33 hit points. Ability scores are next. First is strength. I've got a 4. Intelligence. A 2. Wisdom is next. A 3. Dexterity. I've got a 5. Constitution. Another 5. Charisma and our last chance for an increase. Yet another 5. Considering how well things went for Umura, I'm not even a little disappointed by those rolls. Plus, the hit point increase is very good. Spells-wise, Gyrios will get to hold two spells of each first and second level, so that's an additional second level spell slot from what he had before. Although any of the eight available choices might be good ones, since Gyrios has already prayed today, he will not receive a second, second level spell until he does so again. Day 62, afternoon, elevation, 4,000 feet above sea level. Party status. The party status is unchanged with the following exceptions. Girios, 26 out of 33 hit points. Umura, 23 out of 23 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield, Charm Person, Levitate, Knock, and Lightning Bolt. Today is the solstice, and I feel at one with Mazagar once again. The cleric's voice startled Umura from her trance, and she fell an imperceptible distance to the ground with an undignified thump. She shook her head, momentarily disoriented, and then gently touched a finger to her throat. A broad smile then spread across her face as realization dawned on her. Without hesitation, she pulled her spellbook from her pack and began scribbling furiously. Kyrios, unaware of her revelation, continued to announce his own. I feel... My friends, I feel once again that righteousness will prevail. Just then, Raydell strode back into view and approached the camp. Harl saw the look in his eyes. You have found something, he guessed. Raydell nodded. Something good or... Ill, asked Harl, getting up. Raydell just smiled and cocked his head, motioning for them to follow. He took them to the spot where the distance between their side of the river and the eye was the narrowest. This will not be an easy crossing, said Harl, scrunching up his face and scratching his temple. The far bank looks to be perhaps 50 feet away. Look again, dwarf, said the ranger with another smile. 
Raydell unshouldered his longbow and dipped an end into the flowing brown rivers before them. At a depth of about five inches, it struck something solid and then scraped along a flat surface. Harl squinted and then looked at the river more closely. He laughed as he noticed that the river was perforated with dimples between their position and the far bank. Oh, pillars hidden just under the water's surface, he marveled aloud. An underwater stepping stone bridge of sorts, agreed Raydell, nodding. How was this constructed? How would one even begin to build something like this? asked Gyrios. Magic, supplied Grumblebelly. Blacknail was a great artificer, and I hope you all realize what this means. It means the vault is here, said Umura. It does indeed, Umura. It does indeed. Raydell stepped onto the first pillar and, using his longbow to probe the water before him, found the next and stepped onto that one. Then he found the next, and so on and so on, while the entire party in a daisy chain stepped easily across the fire river from pillar to pillar. Had anyone been watching, they would have seemed to simply walk across the moving surface of the river itself. The eye, they saw when they had all completed the crossing, was like an alien moonscape. Its surface was all of smooth pale stone, furrowed with gullies and crevices that dipped away out of sight and down into shadow. There was no debris on the eye, no silt, dirt, or dust, and so Raydell was at a loss to tell if anyone had arrived before them. With no indication of where they should look for the vault itself, the party made their way roughly towards the eye's center. Here they found a large, smooth, and asymmetrical natural passage in the stone that wound down into a shaded pocket. There wasn't enough room for all of them to enter, but Harl and Grumblebelly, who were in the lead, were both able to fit. Inside, it was cool and reverberant. The two dwarves found themselves in a kind of bubble in the rock, perhaps formed by the river water eons ago. Carved into the natural ceiling of this bubble was something decidedly not created by nature's hand. Harl and Grumblebelly gasped in unison. A disc worked into the stone, featuring a grinning dwarven skull in the center. Around it was a ring of little graven worms and mushrooms. It was the same image Harl knew from the Dwarvarian shrine to Gruenmog and from Kleneth's throne room. In fact, this symbol could be found in every dwarven shrine and throne room from one end of Merith to the other. The ceiling was just low enough for Harl to reach up and touch it. Tentatively, he extended his hand. What do you think, Grumblebelly? It seems we have found a marker, or some sort of thing. As soon as his fingers touched the symbol, Harl disappeared. All right, this <laughs> Cowie Norland Vexes Gaming Rexes or whatever it is. Thanks for the intro, Dave. I'm Steve, host of All Anth Rexes Gaming Vexes, a podcast documenting my ongoing mission to run or at least play all of the RPGs that I seem to be incapable of stopping myself buying. And you'll see me uh, frequently uh, fiddling with something in my hands. Each episode, I get together with a group of fellow gamers that have either played a game I've run or who've GM'd a game for me. We chat through what we've enjoyed about the game and some ways we could have improved the experience whilst making a series of terrible jokes along the way. Was it hot chat action? Sometimes we con game designers who really should know better to come along and talk to us about their games and maybe run an actual play segment 
give us an idea of their vision for their game. I've told this story before, before anyone. Our topics range from old school favourites like RuneQuest through to some of those newfangled narrative games all the cool kids talk about. When you listen, I want you to feel as though you're sitting around our gaming table, taking part in our post-game chat and helping dispose of the last of the crisps and ale. I'll just wax my bowstring and think about the death of the tainted. Oh no, eight, nine, eight. So, if you like listening to people droning on excitedly about games in a range of regional British accents, All Anthrex's Gaming Vexes is the pod for you, and you'll find it on your podcasting app of choice. On occasion, you may even hear something really insightful, but I'm making no promises. Over to you, Dave. Point to Ponxes and make it a Titan. <laughs> Keep it tight. Chapter 48 Part 2 Time Unknown Location Unknown Harl wobbled unsteadily on his feet holding his arms out to each side and trying to find his balance. His thoughts were furry, and his body felt like it had been turned inside out and put right again. He patted himself on the shoulder, chest, and thighs, as if making sure that all of him was still there. In this space he could see without using his dark vision, but there was no source of light and he cast no shadow. The air he was breathing had an odd smell and taste, as though it was not air at all but something equivalent. As his wit settled, he took stock of his surroundings and drew forth his battle axe. He was in a small square room made of uniform sand-colored bricks. The single exit, an open archway, extended into a hallway in front of him. To either side were blank walls, but behind him was a duplicate disc of stone bearing the dwarven sign of the necropolis, the grinning skull. The thick coat of dust carpeted the floor but it had been disturbed, and a trail of mixed footprints led off into the hallway where, some distance ahead, he could see something that looked like a heap of clothing on the floor. It was a little too far to make out the details, and the light was so strange. Harl pinched his eyes shut and shook his head to clear away the last of the cobwebs. A tiny kernel of panic flared like a red-hot ember in his heart as the thought occurred to him that he might be alone for a long, long time. He forced the thought away, and had just taken a step towards the arch when suddenly, Grumblebelly popped into the space he had just occupied. By instinct, Harl grabbed the befuddled artificer by his shoulders and pushed him to the side. It was well that he did so, because a few moments later, Umura appeared. She seemed a little less confused and seemed to know to step to one side on her own. Girios popped into existence and allowed himself to be moved out of the way. Oh, my head. Eridine was in the room, looking drunk and disoriented. She allowed herself to be guided to the side, and together the five of them waited for Raydell to appear. It is not a given that Raydell will join the group. From his perspective, he has just witnessed five people touch a stone skull and vanish. He may or may not be willing to risk his life, for so it would certainly seem to him, to follow. So. What would he do? Retainers do not roll morale until the end of a mission, but Raydell is at the end of his mission, arguably. He promised Ringlock that he would bring them all safely to the Eye in the Fire and back. However, the sudden disappearance of his entire party might be said to override the second part of that promise. It really comes down to a question of loyalty and a leap of faith. 
Harl's high charisma would certainly affect Raydell's decision, but the ranger has already had one brush with death recently, and his duties do not include exploring dangerous vaults and touching magical skulls. I'm going to make a straight roll, with no bonuses or penalties, to see what Raydell does here. I'll roll a reaction check on 2d6. On a very low roll, a 2 to a 4, he'll consider his mission complete and, after waiting an hour, will return to Thangar on his own. A score of 5 to 8 will indicate a decision to stay outside the portal for a full 24 hours before assuming the worst and turning back. A high roll of 9 to 12 will show that Raydell feels more for this group than the simple duty of an employee. He will take the risk and touch the stone. Here's the roll. Okay, so that's what happens. Did he say anything to you? Gyrios asked Eridine. The young rogue shook her head and shrugged simultaneously. I don't think he's going to touch the stone, said Umura. Would you? Apparently, yes, replied Harl, without humor. I mean, if you were him. I know what you meant, Umura. I suppose he is not coming. Perhaps he will wait for us. We best get moving. Where are we, do you think? asked Gyrios as they moved under the arch. Harl had gone first, then Grumblebelly, and Eridine with Umura and the cleric in the rear. Shh, scolded Eridine, shooting Gyrios a hard look. Underground, maybe. I don't want to think how far, replied Umura in a whisper. We could be anywhere. A pocket dimension. A pocket what? I see something ahead, said Eridine. Stay here. The two dwarves allowed her to move past them, and the party waited while she quietly padded ahead down the hall. A few moments later, she signaled for them to come forward while holding a finger to her lips. They advanced slowly, but soon saw what she saw. What Harl had taken for a pile of clothing on the hallway floor was a goblin's corpse. The creature had been cut in two at the waist, the top and bottom half completely separated. Curiously, there was very little blood on the floor. Eridine, suspecting some kind of mechanical trap, carefully bent down to inspect the goblin's body. It was clear at a glance that the cutting had been done by something incredibly sharp. The lack of blood was a mystery. Also, there was no smell of rot. Eridine thought the atmosphere was not quite right in this place, unnatural, and there was an unfamiliar odor, but it did not smell of decay. By now, having come to the same conclusion as Eridine that some trap had dissected the goblin, Harl and Grumblebelly were examining the walls, floor, and ceiling of the area around the goblin's corpse. Eridine, as a thief, has a chance to detect traps. As she is at level 4, her chance is 25%. Each of the dwarves, as part of their special racial abilities, also has a chance to detect traps. In a place like this, they're more skilled than Eridine, and have a 1 in 3 chance. The roll for Eridine. A 44. She's fairly sure that there is a trap here, but cannot see how it was triggered. Harl will roll a d6. He will succeed on a 1 or a 2. A 3. No good. Grumblebelly. A 2. The artificer grabs Eridine by the arm as she reaches out to touch the floor under the goblin. He gently pulls her back and points out that one of the square, sand-colored bricks under the creature is ever so slightly depressed, maybe just a quarter of an inch. He next inspects the wall and finds what he was looking for. At a height of two feet, there is a paper-thin slit between bricks where there should have been mortar. 
A scything blade drop of some kind, guessed Harl. Be careful not to disturb that brick as we pass. Good eye, Grumblebelly. One by one, with some of them holding their breath and some of them whispering a prayer, the party members sidled by the goblin's body and pressure plate, hugging the wall opposite the hidden trap. They breathed a sigh of relief when they had all passed it without incident. Ahead, the hall continued to where it terminated in another archway, identical to the first. The dust here was still disturbed, but now there was only one set of footprints. Human-sized, thought Harl. Clearly that goblin had not been acting alone. Someone had come in, but had not gone back out. That wasn't a reassuring thought. He wasn't sure what he expected to find inside the vault, but it wasn't goblins or humans. It was a mystery beyond his ability to solve. There was a chamber beyond the arch, and they maintained their previous marching order as they entered it. The room was a perfect square, 40 feet by 40 feet. The floor was dominated by a huge circle of iron installed so that it was flush with the sand-colored bricks. Within the iron circle, more shapes worked in iron, also flush with the floor. It was a design, the crest of the Blacknail family, two crossed hammers above a horn. Directly opposite them was a third open archway, with the hallway extending beyond and out of sight, and to either side of the arch was what at first looked like a motionless dwarf in full plate. Quickly, they discerned that these were not dwarves at all, but statues. In fact, they were almost identical to the ones in Clenneth's throne room in Dwervar. From comb to greaves, they were made completely of iron. No faces could be seen beneath the visors of their great helms, only grim darkness. Each gripped a fearsome warhammer, two-handed. Even motionless, they made Gyrios uneasy. Be careful, he said to Harl, who did not seem to share his concern. Harl had already begun walking across the room. They are mere statues, Gyrios, replied Harl, looking over his shoulder. He pointed with his battle axe. Look, the footprints in the dust lead straight between them and into the hallway beyond, and the dust around the statues has not been disturbed. Harl took another few steps toward the far archway. I agree, they do look like Gaxarn. He took another step. He was almost at the iron blacknail crest in the floor. But even if they were, guardians would never harm a dwarf. <laughs> Harl stepped into the iron circle. As one, the armored dwarves came to life. Behind their visors was now a blood-red glow. With the metallic groaning, they lumbered straight towards Harl, lifting their warhammers. What? How can this be? Harl took a step back off the iron ring of the Black Nell Crest. The Gaxon Guardians, living statues of pure iron, did not stop. Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like the show and want to support it, there are a number of ways to do so. One of the best is to rate or review the show. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to help out. I'd like to read a review from the Podcast Addict app. This one is from GM Mike. GM Mike writes, This is by far my favorite podcast. The world created here feels alive. The locales really feel lived in. The story is compelling and you really get attached to the characters. Every episode is inspirational and makes me excited to work on my own home games. Thank you for making this podcast, and keep up the excellent work. I can't thank you enough for writing that, GM Mike. That really means a lot to me. I'm so thrilled that I can inspire your own home game, and that you're attached to the characters. Uh, I definitely am too. Thank you so much for that. 
there's also now a new way to support the show. I've just released a rules ultralight RPG called One Shot in the Dark. You can buy it on DriveThruRPG for the price of a cup of coffee. Although One Shot in the Dark is not related to Tale of the Manticore, all proceeds from the sale of the game will go towards maintaining and improving the show. Returning in this chapter in their roles as Grumblebelly and Raydell are James Schrall from the wonderful solo play podcast Subclass Act and Bruno of the Chronicles of the Crimson Hound YouTube channel. Thanks to James and Bruno for their great work. For those listeners who enjoy extras like maps, character sheets, artwork, and the occasional random musing, you can visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. You can also contact me on Twitter using the handle at manticoretale or on Instagram at taleofthemanticorepodcast. If you have comments or questions about the show, please send them to me via my Gmail account. That's taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I'm collecting questions to potentially use in a future mailbag episode. If you have a question but want to remain anonymous, that's totally okay. Just let me know your preference in the email. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. In a world headed for disaster, five strangers with mysterious pasts are thrown together by the winds of fate to try to stop the unseen forces that threaten to destroy their world. Join Creval, a dragonborn with no memory and no past, who is the first of the barbarians of the mountains to be seen in a thousand years. Cotter, a penniless paladin, running from something or someone in his past. No one, the only tiefling monk the kingdom has ever seen, who has been expelled from his monastery for reasons he has not revealed. Adri, his monastic companion who hides some deep dark secret she cannot reveal, and Arlen, once a simple farmer, until some mysterious event manifested sorcerous powers in him. They must travel the length and breadth of the kingdom of Faro, searching for the disparate clues that will help them unravel the mystery of the failing of their land, while trying to hold together the unraveling threads of society's weave threatening to come apart at any moment. They will have to battle nature, plague, politics, and even the forces of the underworld as they attempt to discover and defeat whoever, or whatever, is attempting to poison their world and throw it into chaos. Relic of the Past is a novel-length story told via a clean, custom, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons game. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are found, and at poolmedia.podbean.com.